Your mental health is your dopest self But you don't have to tend to it by yourself Get a tribe, get inspired, then you'll get ahead Get someone to talk to, don't keep it bottled in You're beautifully human, you should remember this So it's okay for you to feel emotions At times we all need to clear our heads And when you do, just holler at Therapy by May back to another week of the perinatal podcast where we discuss all things perinatal mental health. I am so excited this week. We have uh, Victoria Wigley, founder of All About Embryology. She is a state registered clinical embryologist with nearly 15 years of clinical experience in an IVF laboratory. Her aim is to use her years of experience and expertise to give patients independent advice and support through their infertility treatment journey. By improving her patient's understanding and providing all the required information in a relaxed, impartial environment, it allows her patients to get back in control and make genuinely informed decisions about their treatment whilst feeling they have that extra support along the way. Welcome, welcome. What a pleasure to have you. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me on. <laughs> oh my goodness. Well, I've been, I, I always like to start with how do we know each other? And often it's because I've DM'd somebody and that's where we are here, but I've been following you for so long and it's, I've just, this is exactly what a lot of my clients are talking about. Certainly a lot of conversations in the perinatal space. And so um, I'm so excited to, to hear all you have to share with us today. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. So tell me, we'll just jump in. You know, it's been 15 years that you've been working in it. How did you get interested in working in embryology? So I, it was sort of, it was, it was one of those decisions that I didn't sort of know from the word go that I was going to do it. You know, you see some people now and obviously the IVF world is much more known about now um, than it was back when I started. So I really came out of school and I knew that I liked sciences. So I went and I did my degree in human genetics. Mm. And then I knew, you know, I didn't I didn't have a specific career choice from that. So I knew I wanted to go on and do a, a master's. So I did my master's in prenatal genetics and fetal medicine solely because that was the part of the degree that I loved the most. And it was quite an emerging field. Um, and then it was really in that that um, my uh, course organizer, who's um, Professor Joyce Harper, who's you know got quite a, quite a big social media presence now, she um, said, you know, each year that there are people that I think would would make a good embryologist, and obviously from some of my personality traits, which maybe isn't necessarily a compliment, but um, she said she thought she thought it would you know be something that that I might be quite good at, and then we got a chance to to go into a lab, and we had two days shadowing um, in the labs. And even though it was something I'd never considered as a career choice before, as soon as I was in those labs, I just knew that that, that was what I wanted to do. Um, and then, yeah, that's how I started. So sort of after I finished my master's degree, um, I then started applying from jobs from that point. Um, and then here we are today. That's amazing. Yeah. And so I know you kind of talked about already. I was curious about like what kind of training goes into a, obtaining a master's in science, so prenatal genetics and fetal medicine. And um, that's that's really interesting for sure. Yeah, no, it's, a, I mean, most people will go in with some form of a master's or a PhD, um, but then the actual training you do. So it's changed since I um, I did it. So when I was um, a, a trainee, I applied for a job and then in-house, I did a two-year training scheme, which was called our ACE certificate back then. Um, and you, you, it was kind of a mixture of uh, practical and theoretical um, it, it testing. Um, so we would have um, a, a logbook that we keep to sort of make sure we've done the right number of cases under supervision. 
And then we would have a huge chunk where we would be writing, you know, essay questions and um, stuff. And then it was a, a, a viva at the end to, to check that you were up to the standard. Once you'd passed that, you would then have about another two years of clinical practice. And then you could then apply on for state registration, which would then put you up to more of the senior, senior bracket. In the UK, um, obviously overseas, they're all going to have their own version of that. In the UK now, we've got um, something that's kind of putting the embryologist more in line with other clinical science specialities. So it's called the STP training route, which is um, a, a bit you know, different to what I did, but along the same lines of, of training programs. So it's really a combination. It's very academic. You have to be an academic to, to, to be able to do it, but it combines with a lot of, um, you know, practical uh, training that has to go into it. I mean, you're, you're dealing with stuff, especially, you know, if you're, you're doing the injection of the sperm into the eggs, you know, you're on a huge bit of what well, almost looks like a PlayStation equipment that you're, you're dealing with. So a lot of training goes into, into, to being able to, to sort of be an experienced embryologist. Um, but yeah, it's, it's good once you get through it. <laughs> oh my gosh. Is that, and well, it's good though. I mean, it's a very specific and important job that you do. So it's good that you feel well-trained for it and watching the videos of what you do. I, I just find it so fascinating of like, there it is that you're just making, here we are and you can see it happening. And now we, we can record it on video and it's a beautiful and very sciencey thing that's that's happening. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's the beauty of it now that you know I've been able to to try and use the platform that I'm building up now on social media. But then, because I've still got the links with my my old clinics, I'm able to then go in and and do some of the filming that really it takes an embryologist to do because you know what you're looking for at the right things and what what I mean. I take hundreds of little video clips, and the editing that I've got to do at the end is huge, but. I know what the journey of that particular procedure is and what the parts are that I want to be able to show the patients. Um, so it's it's very lucky that I've I've been able to still go back into to the labs to, to be able to show that for patients because it's really something that patients don't often get the chance to see ever. Um, and you can explain it, you know, till till the cows come home. But if if they don't <laughs> really understand it, then it's going to be very difficult. Whereas if they can visually see it sometimes. Um, that that really helps patients. Yes, absolutely. I, I, you know, absolutely. We talk about kind of explaining the why to children and like why we're doing something, how it works, making processes. And I think adults are the same way, right? We need to understand the how and the why and the where and whatever's going on. And so it's really, it's nice. Also, it sounds like you get to do a little video editing, which is <laughs> maybe not something you had envisioned when you decided to go into the science. <laughs> No, it wasn't. And I, I'm learning on the job, put it that way. <laughs> oh, no. for sure. Absolutely. So I'm curious, I, I was wondering what some of the kind of the biggest misconceptions might be about embryology, IUI, IVF. What are some of the things that you find some hurdles that you're experiencing, that your patients are, things that you keep coming up against? Yeah, it's a tricky one because um, it's, it's a very you know tough journey for people to go on and I think I'd say probably the number one misconception is that when people have been trying to conceive naturally um, and they finally make the decision that actually things aren't working naturally and they do need to, to, to go and get a bit of help I think that the common misconception is that by them doing that they're going to get pregnant and they're going to get pregnant the first time and I think that's a really tricky one because especially when people have to you know emotionally prepare themselves for, for going down that route 
it's a difficult I remember once I got told um, by um, a lady who used to be the, the fertility counsellor in my very first clinic when I was a trainee and um, she sort of gave all of us a, a bit of a, a, a chat and she was sort of saying that actually what we've got to realise is that the moment people step foot in the door of a fertility clinic they're accepting the fact that actually they can't do something that they feel like they should be able to do naturally yes. and they are now looking for help um so no matter what emotions you're going to experience from these patients whether they come across as being angry or you know they're they're very tearful or all of the different emotions that we see day in day out yes you, we've got to be incredibly empathetic for for that um but obviously when these people are going through that journey and they they, they make the decision to to get help then when it doesn't work, it is just heartbreaking um, because there is this misconception that actually all it will take is to, to do a round of treatment. Um, and unfortunately, you know, even, you know, Louise Brown, who's the first um, IVF baby that was, was ever born, she's over 40 now. So we're still, we know, we're, we're over four decades down the line of when we first started doing IVF. And we we can't get it up to that point where we can guarantee pregnancies we just can't um and it's it's incredibly difficult um but again this all goes back to sort of my my view on education and you know that we need to really really start teaching from a much earlier stage than the people that are coming through that need the treatment we need to start educating earlier um mm -hmm. so that people are aware um of, of, of what potentially might happen and what the treatments are and what the chances of success are and, and, and everything like that. Oh, I, I have chills. I, that is, thank you for saying that because I, it's been a lot, people say some really interesting things when people are grieving or upset or having their troubles. And I can't tell you how many times I've had clients or people, or I just hear anecdotally that people are like, well, just do IVF <laughs> yeah. as though that is, first of all, in any way easy or financially um, reachable for so many people. And also as though that is the, that's the ticket. That's it. Yeah. Check that box. And, uh, and now there are your children. And, and so it is very important for people to be aware of the, all that goes into it. And you're right. It's funny. I follow um, the first us IVF baby on Instagram. Oh, Her oh. tagline says that. And, and yeah, and it's, it's been a while and, you know, it's, it's a science, but it's all, I mean, we still don't know a lot what causes some people to have people to have issues with fertility and, and uh, humans are compared to majority of other species. Humans are infertile. We are generally an infertile species. You know, you, you imagine, you know, with, when you're wanting to get a pup, you know, a litter of puppies, you, you do one round of, uh, you know, artificial insemination, or you just put the, the male dog in at the right time and it works. Yes. <laughs> they puppies so it, it, it's something that um you know we do have to accept it's it's very unlikely that we will ever get it to the point of the 100 percent mark we can hopefully keep improving with more and more research um but we we are away away from that at the moment and that is something that i think you know we we do need to educate people more and like you say not giving people the you know misconception that if they go for IVF, then great, they'll get their baby. And this time next year, you know, they'll, they'll have their babies. It, it unfortunately doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. um, we can try and do as much as we can for, for patients, but also depending on the cause of infertility, um, sometimes they're, they're, 
there, there's not going to be a straightforward journey for them. Yes. I'm actually wondering, I did not put this in the outline, so I apologize, but a little pivot, but I, I just, I'm, I'm, when I started this conversation with you about coming on, I was assuming that people would know a lot about IVF. And I'm really thinking that I have a number of listeners who might not be aware of what kind of the process is. Could you, you don't have to take too much time, but could you kind of walk through a novice person who's listening because they're curious, or maybe they're starting their fertility journey, or um, they want to be supportive of somebody in their life who is experiencing fertility struggles, could you kind of, I, I don't want you to have to take too long or you can take as long as you want. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. absolutely. A walkthrough of that, please. Yeah. So, I mean, I'll quickly touch upon IUI first. So um, IUI is intrauterine insemination. So that is usually the most um, non-invasive basic perhaps starting point for some people. Now patients have to, the sperm sample has to be good quality and the patients have to make sure they've got clear tubes uh, before doing that. But by doing that, what we have, what we do is we prepare the sperm sample in the lab to try and concentrate the good quality sperm. And then with a very small catheter, we go through the cervix and deposit the sperm directly into the uterus at the time of ovulation. So that's deemed as kind of the, the least invasive starting point. Success rates are a lot lower with that than if you do jump to the IVF. Um, so sometimes people will start and have a few cycles of that um, if they're eligible. Um, otherwise, if, if people talk about IVF, what we're talking about is we're, we're, we're talking about ovarian stimulation. So by that, what we're wanting to do is normally each month you get a cohort of eggs that start to grow and one gains dominancy and you ovulate. In IVF, because we're giving injections with all this external medication, we try and get as many of those follicles that would have originally not grown to grow up. And then at the time that they are at a good enough size, which is about usually 10 to, to 14 days um, after they've started their, their medication, the doctor um, will go through um, the vaginal wall with a, with a needle and will go and puncture each of those follicles, draw out the fluid from the follicles, and we as embryologists then take over and we check through the fluid and we look for those eggs. And then we collect the eggs into the lab. At the same time, like with IUI, we prepare the sperm sample to try and optimize it. Um, and then we combine the sperm with the eggs. Now, depending on um, how good the sperm is, we either just mix the sperm sample with the eggs. Now that is called conventional IVF. So when people just say IVF in general, that's usually what they're talking about. If the sperm sample is bad, we take individual sperm and we inject it directly into the eggs. So both of those two methods are trying to get those eggs to fertilize. And then we can grow them up in the lab and then see how the embryos develop and then transfer um, the, the best embryo or embryos. Um, and then that is what, what we call as IVF. Amazing. I appreciate, I was sitting there and I was like, you know what? I bet there's somebody here listening who... Yeah maybe doesn't know the whole story. And so, and that's the thing too. So with IUI versus IVF, there are different hormonal injections and steps that a person has to take to prepare their body yeah. to be ready for that. Yeah. So IUI is, you, you might have a little bit of medication. It could be completely natural, um, but it's nowhere near on the level of, of, of IVF because IVF, we're trying to get as many of them to grow. Whereas IUI, we don't want all of you know, them to grow because then you're going to get your 
you know octuplets and, and everything <laughs> else so um yeah they have to be a bit more cautious with they they're trying to see which ones would have naturally been dominant with IUI um and just get one or two usually to ovulate mm-hmm. absolutely and and I know I think most of the listeners who are here probably are familiar with the idea of you know, the photos that you see of the pregnancy announcement it's a uh, covered by a halo of syringes and tests and all of those things that people have to go through um it it puts it very much into perspective about Mm -hmm. their journey Um, it really does yeah absolutely and i agree with you too the education piece it's i have to admit i until i had my own fertility struggles i didn't know a lot about this sort of thing and of course you know colloquially you hear about ivf and um that sort of but really um not a lot. And it's difficult because it's, we're just doing ourselves a disservice by not preparing people, you know, to, to be aware of what's going on with their bodies and what could be ahead. Yeah. I mean, even, even in education in schools, you know, we, we talk about the, the reproductive cycle and we're a lot talked about, you know, don't get pregnant as a teenager. And yes. so we, that is basically what people believe, you know, they, they believe that it's going to be easy and straightforward. We spend, you know, a vast chunk of our uh, adult lives trying not to get pregnant and then think that, you know, yes. when, <laughs> when we then stop taking the pill or, or anything that, you know, we've been using, that it will just work. Um, and we are not given any basic education. Um, and that was one, one of the reasons that um, I decided to put some stuff on TikTok as well, because it is a slightly younger um, generation and it's sort of a, a, a means to, to try and educate people that even if people are in their early 20s it's not too young to start learning about these things it's not to say that they will experience problems but we're at a point now where approximately one in six couples will need some form of help Mm -hmm. um and you know that's a huge you know statistic to, to think about if you think about kind of social gatherings of friends you know you come out of school or university with or anything if you think of the group you know, chances are that there's going to be at least one couple in the group that will need need some help getting pregnant. Absolutely. And we just went through um, over here in the States that our National Infertility Awareness Week. And mm-hmm. so a lot of people were talking about, um, you know, one in six, one in four, one in eight, the a number of pregnancy losses, the number of fertility struggles, all of that. And yeah. it is still something that we're continuing to work on the stigma as well of. Yeah you know, we fight those old, don't, don't let me get too much on my soapbox, but those old patriarchal ideas of we're women and we have, that's our job is to make babies. And then somehow you're feeling like a failure when your body doesn't do that for you. Um, Like you mentioned earlier, something that should, there's that word, but should be something that we can naturally do. And so the more that we talk about it, the more normalized people can feel, the more support people can find. And of course, again, like you were talking about just knowing, having an idea of what you have to look forward to. And it is, it's, it's wild. I really don't remember in school, which was a while ago, but I don't remember in school ever learning about like, I knew what a period was, but I don't ever remember learning about ovulation and how get pregnant besides don't, you know, use condoms, birth control sort of thing, but which I don't get me started again on another soapbox in the United States that education is starting to be blocked. But, um, but yeah, I think that's a really interesting thing that would be helpful for people to understand very specifically. This is cervical mucus and what that looks like. And yeah, I think there's, there's so much to be learned. Um, And then hopefully, like you say, it will start the conversations going 
um, because I still, it still breaks my heart. You know, I've got really close friends who have had fertility struggles and they still haven't felt that they can come and talk um, to me or to, to other friends. And, and to them, they, they'd feel that everyone else is having it easy. And I, you know, I have to always say to people, just because you see someone who is carrying a baby or has just done a pregnancy announcement or something, because we're not talking about it, we don't know whether they kept on saying, oh, I don't want babies yet, but actually were going to a fertility clinic and getting help. Or, you know, they actually had a miscarriage that they just couldn't tell people about and they didn't feel they could tell people. You know, I was talking about this the other day on an Instagram live with, with um, someone that we were saying about how, I don't know how much of it is the same um, over with you guys, but here it seems that people almost feel that they can't announce a pregnancy before 12 weeks. Yes. And it's this, there's this rule that, you know, who, somebody out there has set this rule that it's 12 yes. weeks. And yes, we know that the chance of miscarriage decreased significantly after 12 weeks. But what you, I say to people all the time is actually, if you were to get pregnant and to lose your pregnancy, would you need support? from your friends and your family. And if you would need their support going through a situation like that, then what's to stop you telling them before the 12 weeks? Because that's the only reason we're not, is that we feel like we should conceal having a miscarriage if we lose the pregnancy. Mm -hmm. So actually, you know, with this whole, you know, thing where people say, oh, I better not tell anyone because it's, it's only 10 weeks. It, 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 actually, you've got to break down why you wouldn't, tell someone because actually all that can happen is you have a miscarriage you know and the pregnancy doesn't continue and actually at that point in time you may very very much need people around you to to support you through it um so yeah it's it's a it's a really difficult one it's a like you said it's a, there's a still a, a huge stigma um mm -hmm. which we we just need to break by getting these kind of conversations going yeah, I actually remember um, a little self-disclosure moment here. I remember with my husband when we were pregnant the very first time. I mean, we called everybody. We called the day I found out and then we had a pregnancy loss. And so the second time I got pregnant, my husband was like, maybe we should wait. So, and I was like, but for me, I thought, I think, and this is for me, I, if I'm going to share with some people, cause I'm going to, there are certain people who I will know and certain less people who I wouldn't have told, but if I'm going to share the sad with them, I'd like to be able to share the good and be cautiously optimistic or just optimistic, however people want to be. And, and it is because a pregnancy loss is so difficult. And even in those early stages, I definitely, I had an obstetrician once kept, keep telling me like I was barely pregnant. And I was like, I need you to stop saying that to me, because when you are trying to have a baby and it's been years and you've had pregnancy loss, you see, you know, two positive lines or positive on the digital or whatever it is. And you can't, again, everyone's different, but I was very excited and it was very real to me. And so to hear oh, people to say that, so it's also the other thing too, like we need to start validating ourselves in the journey and saying, we're allowed to be excited. We're allowed to be nervous. We're allowed to share. Um, and yes, absolutely. Because going through pregnancy loss alone is, uh, I don't know unmanageable <laughs> yeah yeah no exactly and I think yeah you've you've said it absolutely perfectly that you know it is and that's 
that's why we need support and we need mm-hmm. to, to, to be able to talk. I mean, everyone is individual. Everyone's approaches are going to be different. Sure. And you can never tell someone the right or the wrong way of, of, of dealing with it. But mm-hmm. it's sort of to, to make people realise, you know, that actually they don't have to do it alone. Yes. Um, well, and you mentioned, too, in a story about you have heard somebody's First of all, the fact that people feel entitled to be able to ask about baby goals is wild. I hope we stop. I hope we can stop that. Like, don't ask people about what their sex life and their child, you know, desires. People might even, yeah, but people might even say, I've not, I've not thought about this, that people might actually say like, oh, we're not ready for kids yet, but really they've been trying and struggling or having issues, but because people feel so entitled to ask that they're having to not be able to speak their truth. Yeah, no, I mean, I've certainly I've got a lot of friends um, who have just got one child. And as an embryologist, I have never, ever asked any of them, would you would you want a second? Uh-huh. Because even if they're not going to come and tell me, I, I make an automatic assumption in my head that there could well have been, uh, you know, a, a reason. Nine times out of 10, it's not necessarily the, the, the right. But I feel like I, I make that so that um it's not my place to ask it's not my place to ask if they want to come to me with uh, the information then that's a different matter um yes. but yeah and likewise with with friends that um don't have children at all you know there's some friends that have made that actual you know choice that they don't want to and other ones that I don't know and I would never ask them um yes. because that, their information to share if they want to and it's certainly yes. not something yeah. that great auntie someone should ask a, a few well, so, true. Yeah. so true well and also this is another topic for another podcast episode but people who are emphatically childless also stop asking those people to right like yeah. we're all doing what we want and doing what we can and um let's absolutely. let's start the charge to stop asking people <laughs> absolutely <laughs> Absolutely. So I'm curious, what are the things that you do to help people learn about their options and encourage them to feel confident in advocating for themselves throughout this journey? Um, So I've kind of got two two different avenues. So as we've touched upon, a big Mm -hmm. drive that um, I, I really feel passionate about is the education side. So that's why I'm sort of doing the social media, you know, as regularly as I am trying to get you know just some solid easy to understand information out there for people to 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 understand and follow um so that's one side of it the perinatal podcast is supported by mom and dad makers of exceedingly comfortable and stylish pumping nursing and maternity bras specially designed clips and straps allow for easy access to feed your little one the design is specified to support the extra weight and increased size of your chest as milk starts to build and the beautiful fabrics and colors are created to help you feel sexy and current go to mominda underscore bras on instagram us.mominda.cc for my listeners in the states and shop.mominda.cc for my international listeners use code perinatal for 10 percent off your entire order of 40 dollars or more the other side is um the consultations that i offer one-on-one with patients um so because and actually the one good thing that's come off the back of COVID is that actually, you know, we're now doing a, you know, a, a Zoom where we, we know we're, we're not anywhere near each other. Likewise, with consultations, probably before COVID, the thought of speaking to a medical or 
practitioner or anything over the phone or over video call would seem not very normal whereas now we're all completely used to it yes um, so it's been something that actually I can do from my home I'm not restricted you know geographically I've I had one patient who um was living over in Bali um so you know it's you can completely sort of that generally yes there are different ways some clinics operate but generally speaking the basic understanding is is very similar um so I can offer um, patients, so either my patients will be first timers who are just starting their journey and they're feeling incredibly overwhelmed. Um, there is an absolute you know, bombardment of information that they get given in that first stage of, of consultations with the doctor. Um, and often they come away from that consultation more confused than, than when they went in. Um, yeah and then there's this sort of big sort of trying to understand what's happening and I've seen and the more I got to spend with my patients when I was still working as a lab manager in my last role I realized that actually there's a bit of a, um, a black hole between when the patients see the doctor and they they're talking about the causes of infertility they've done the diagnostic tests then they start talking about the stimulation and and potentially what's going to happen with with um, the starter part of their treatment and then suddenly they're, they're starting this journey and they don't really know what's going to happen from that point of collection onwards. Um, and I realised that even sort of managing patients' expectations about, um, you know, what are we looking for when we're, um, you know, doing sort of embryo grading or what do we expect for, a, you know, a fertilisation rate and why do we grow them to day five rather than day three and all things like this. If, if you can really instill that understanding in these people who are, who are very early stages of their journey, mm-hmm. they will feel so much more in control. They will understand what's going to happen um and really feel like you know that th- th- this is them back in control you know they felt potentially very vulnerable when they started it and actually if they can get themselves back in control um then brilliant so that's kind of one group of my patients mm-hmm. um and the other group uh, are the people that have maybe had two or three cycles already um and they're at the point where they're wanting to know what next you know what is it worth now exploring some of the add-ons um, so you know maybe the genetic screening side or or uh, anything that might change you know a, a cycle outcome um, and obviously especially I don't know again I, I don't know sort of how the press deals with with stuff over with you guys but mm-hmm. in the UK um, fertility clinics can get very um, given a bad press shall we say um, okay. so in in the way that um it, it can come across that um that all these clinics are just trying to get money out of the patients and they're throwing a lot of unnecessary additional extras and all extra tests and all extra treatments that potentially patients don't need now um i have to admit that i've been very fortunate in all the clinics i've worked out that that certainly hasn't ever been the case mm-hmm. but having started you know this this new business where I'm able to speak to some patients and really go through their treatment cycles with them and understand what they are being offered. Um, I have realized that actually people are being offered stuff that maybe they don't need. Um, sure. And, you know, your, your patients are very, very vulnerable in these situations because if, if a, a doctor or a, a, a 
clinical member of staff says to them, you know, oh, should we try this in this cycle or, or should we do this? And and then they'll sort of say, oh, OK, well, is that worth doing? You know, what, what, what are the pros and cons? And if they're sort of very briefly said, well, you know, well, it could be good for this or, yeah, there's some paper that says it's good for this. or And then they'll, they'll, they'll think, well, if I, if I say no, then am I going to ruin my chances? Right. But then they're you know, thrown with a, you know, £500,000 extra um you know fee on top of their their already incredibly expensive treatment um so really my role um for these particular patients is someone who's completely independent and unbiased and impartial for these people Mm. it does not make any difference to me whether they choose to do the extra treatments or not i'm here to give them all of the information and to make them fully understand the pros and cons, why they might be being offered it, whether it's worth contemplating that route versus that route, and really just increase their understanding. And it goes back to what we were saying, it then puts them back in control because they can then make that genuinely informed decision. They're not being, you know, guided by, uh, you know, someone that they maybe feel is pushing them for the wrong reasons. Right they can then make that choice and they can ask the right questions when they go back to their doctor. You know, I'm not there to change anything. I'm just there to to help them along the way and make sure that they know what they're signing up to um, before they go ahead with it. Um, And in my mind, knowledge is absolute power. If we can, you know, help these people by giving them that that knowledge, um, then, you know, it will help their journey hugely um, when they go for treatment. That is such an interesting piece of that. You're absolutely right. And I've had this conversation with other professions outside of just perinatal and reproductive, but about like when we are ignorant to medical procedures or things that are going on, and then you're like, do I need this? But the person's telling me I need this, but are they just trying to book an extra vacation or right? And, and so it's, it can be helpful to have somebody who, you know, to be able to bounce questions off of and feel like you're making an inform. We just, the whole theme of this is education. You're making an informed decision based off the best information that we have of the best understanding of the individual's situation to be able to move forward. No, absolutely. And, you know, then there's someone that I always say on a Sunday night when suddenly you've got, you know, a consultation booked with your clinic on the Monday, and then you're, you're panicking and you're thinking about these things we all do it. I'm just as bad. You turn to Dr. Google and you, yes. can, you can get yourself and there will always be an answer that you're looking for. And usually when we're in that kind of state of mind, you're, you're looking for the worst case scenario on something mm-hmm. and there will be something out there, whether it's in a forum or some misinformation or, or something that it can be very, very difficult for these people. Um, so I always say to my patients, when I can and I've got my phone on me or I'm access to emails I can just answer a really quick question to stop them at that point um someone that they can kind of turn to and that will check in on them and just just make sure that you know that that they're doing all right um so it's giving a support side as well which um it has been a really lovely side to it that I didn't originally think I would be able to provide to people I thought my role, I'm a scientist, I thought my role would always just be science. Um, Yes. But it's sort of being, just being that person for someone um, 
actually I've realised means a lot for them emotionally, um, which is, is, is really lovely. That's so true because you're right with the scientific piece, not that all people who participate in the sciences don't have the ability for empathy, but you're right that you don't need to be as empathetic when you're in a lab and it's a very scientific procedural this, but this, but this, whereas when you're talking about a human who is going through what can be the most or one of the most difficult things that they'll experience, it's so great to have somebody who has the science knowledge, but then is also able to have that, you know, bedside manner of being able to say that. And I also want to put in big, bright red capital letters, stay off Dr. Google, people. Yeah, I know. I say I know. I said it on this show. I have said it to many a client. Yeah. Stay off Dr. Google. Oh, yeah. oh, we're all guilty. I do it. I'm just as bad as. but yeah it's it's not not a good thing to do when you're you're feeling in that way um yes yeah yes because oftentimes as you mentioned the worst case scenario is often what pops up first (laughs) and then um and then we spiral and we have panic and anxiety or stressors that are related to something that we don't even necessarily know is actually what's in front of us. So um, that's great that people have that opportunity to get with you so that they can stay off Dr. Google. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, I was wondering too, another, another uh, jaunt off the beaten path here. Could you go into a little bit of education about kind of egg quality and what those rating systems look like? So that, because again, I know there are people who are listening who this is the first time they've ever spent much time with the topic. Yeah, no, of course. So we, we don't really grade the eggs as much when, when we retrieve them. Mm-hmm. Um, what we look for with eggs is we look for the maturity. Um, yes. So we look to see if it's, it's undergone its final stage of maturation. Um, but with the embryos, when we yes. start growing the embryos up, that's when we can start seeing the quality. And so when, when the patients get calls from the embryologist, mm-hmm. we're able to tell them two things. Are the embryos growing at the right rate of development? So there should be a certain cell stage at a certain time point um so are they growing at the right rate and what's their quality um so by quality what we're looking for is things when you do a cell division you have a single cell that divides into two it should do a nice even division into two if you get little bits that break away as it divides they're called fragments and the more fragments you have the worse the quality is then going to be so there's there's grading things and we look at you know the, if the cells are granular and things like that um so that's generally how we start grading them in the early stages and then when they start forming a blastocyst on day five or day six which is just the name that we give the embryo at that point mm-hmm. we start looking at a few other um, factors because it, it's quite different at that stage um but we then really get an idea with the patients what this their, their cohort of embryos are looking like um and do they have a, a, a good you know, quality. And obviously we as embryologists would select based on the quality. So mm-hmm. the best dividing embryos. Um, and, you know, that, that would be the, the way we select um, when we do the embryo transfer. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause I know we, I've had some people in the past who were talking about, and um, it's, it's a, it's a whole other language, a whole um, other realm of knowledge. And also, thank you. I did say egg earlier when I meant to say embryo. So <laughs> thank you for catching oh, that. Oh, that's all right. No, no, no. Um, but yeah, and it, it, and it really truly is. And it's so 
much to know and understand and what choices that you make based on the, the grading and the quality and um, all of that stuff that needs to be known ahead of time. So it's not a surprise um, yeah. when we get to exactly. that stage. So they know when the, that phone call is going to come, because this is the biggest thing I hear from, from patients is you know, that awful anxiety of waiting for the phone to ring and, and then getting told something and then getting incredibly upset by the result. But actually, you know, it may well be. So I've had people before who have had a completely normal fertilization rate, but in their head, because there's been some that haven't fertilized, they've, you know, think thought that it is the worst thing that's happened and will only focus on the ones that haven't fertilized. Yeah. And it's about just making sure that they knew in advance what to expect. So when you get that phone call, you're saying, well, okay, I'm looking for 60 to 70% of my eggs. So I know at this point how many I should be expecting. And if I get more, a bonus. If I get less, then we can obviously discuss that at that point. But I know what I'm expecting. Yeah. Um, so it, it, anything that like that that we can do. And, and patients, embryology is such um, uh, you know, an intensive uh, job to have. And mm-hmm. the embryologist time is so caught up in the lab with the, the, the lab procedures that really you, you don't get much of a chance to come out and chat this kind of stuff with your patients. It was only really when I moved to my smaller clinic and then I became the lab manager that I really gave this a focal point because I had time to do it because I was working in a smaller clinic. I managed my own time and I could then dedicate time to, to spending with the patients. And it was only at that point that I really realized that they, they don't have that knowledge mm-hmm. uh, beforehand. Um, and if you can equip them with that knowledge beforehand, they'll then, they'll then find it. And, you know, even if they, you know, suddenly went, Oh, it's you, it's you on the phone again, calling that like, even if they heard my voice, because yeah. I've spoken to them in advance, even something like that would be such a sort of calming thing for the patients. You know, even before I told them the, the results, you know, we can't determine what the results are going to be. Right your loveliest of patients when the results aren't good it is is a really difficult phone call for us to make right um but if if they've spoken to you before and they know you know how how you're going to explain it and you know what you're looking for it just takes that that slight edge off it um which i think you know if anything like that you can do will really help these people mm-hmm. well another one of those lovely phrases that people love to throw at people in fertility is just calm down, just relax. It'll happen. And it's like, I don't think people understand how stressful every specific day and every new piece of information and every failed round or new period or negative test or whatever it might be. Um, And so while I am not telling everybody to calm down because it'll help you get pregnant, it is nice to have moments where we can find, like we can seek some solace and some calming moments because we know what is coming and, and what we can look forward to and be prepared for that. Exactly. I mean, it's, you know, you, it's like anything in life, you know, if you, if you've equipped yourself in advance, mm-hmm. it's not going to change the outcome and it's certainly not going to change the heartbreak, you know, when things don't go right, but it just gives you a, a little bit of help. To, yeah. to, to deal with it um because yeah. you, you know you're you're in a better position to start with um and you know it's as you know i'm sure you know you, you've mentioned like it is it is an absolute 
roller coaster of emotions mm-hmm. that that you go through um and every step is a hurdle every step's a hurdle where things can go wrong and you think yes i've got to this point but then you know you you can't almost let yourself get get excited because you don't know what's going to be the, the phone call the next day um so it is it is a very difficult you know process that, that people will go through Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, so I I had a question for you um, from your birthday post, which it's a little after your birthday, but happy birthday. Oh, <laughs> and by the time I this airs, it will be like a month past your birthday. So people who know you're going to be like, what is she talking about? <laughs> but I obviously, I, I stopped you on the Instagram and I so on some of your posts that I love. I really love the one from your birthday, though, that you were talking about taking care of yourself and not letting your battery deplete because we wouldn't allow you know, like our cell phone battery to deplete. So let's make sure that we're not doing that to ourselves. And um, I was just curious, what are some things that perhaps if you don't mind sharing that you do for yourself or something that you do um, that you encourage people to do to take that time for themselves to to make their, their self-care a priority? Yeah. No, I mean, it's absolutely. And the, the older I'm getting, the more I realize just how important it is. Um, and we don't, do enough of it and we don't do enough of it because you know we might feel that we're being selfish or self-indulgent or anything like that I mean I have really in the last couple of years and it, one of the decisions actually to come out of the lab mm-hmm. was to protect myself um because yeah. I've you know I've got a young family myself and I was working in such a high-pressured environment constantly and going back to what I was saying about the small clinic it it was absolutely brilliant for a lot of things but because there was only me and one or two other members of staff so much fell on me um and obviously I had the rapport with a lot of my patients but it meant I was having patients who and they didn't mean to but they were sort of saying I was working part-time because I'd just given birth to my second baby and uh, I, I was having patients saying to me oh is it this weekend you're working or are you not working this weekend or you know or you don't do a Friday normally do you but is there any chance you could come in and I was finding that I was coming in and I was of course supporting myself I was putting my family to the back because I was so desperate to help these people um and there was one moment that I had a real realization that this was a little bit too much um and I could potentially burn myself out um was when I um came into a particular procedure that the other embryologist wasn't trained to do so I brought my two children in one I think was eight months at the time I know about a year maybe and um I came back up and she'd done a poo when I was doing the ICSI obviously she had a nappies and everything on and I was on my office floor because we don't have baby changing stuff in of course so I was on my office floor. I'd finished the procedure with my scrub still on, changing her nappy on the floor mm. in there. And I suddenly went, oh, what am I doing? Like, What you know, a moment. Yeah, it was a real, it was a real moment. Um, and I wouldn't change any of it because I am proud of what I could do for my patients. And I think what made me a good embryologist um was that at that point in time i gave everything to them and in and obviously it's not sustainable for someone to live like that but it it was how i wanted to be as an embryologist um 
So certainly now I am trying to focus more on kind of me and my family. Um, so, you know, we've got a dog now. So even things like making sure I go and do my dog walks, yes. getting you know fresh air, exercising. I love exercising, but I do a sort of an outdoor boot camp and things like that. I just, it just resets me and, um, you know, helps me look after myself. And so I say to patients, anything they can do throughout their treatment to look after themselves, they must prioritize. Mm-hmm. Um, people will often ask me, you know, will it help their chances if they have acupuncture or reflexology and things like that, that I can't say conclusively it will. Mm-hmm. I can't give them any firm statistics that will say, yes, you're going to improve your chances. What I will give them is the information that they are making a decision about something that will make them feel calmer, that will make them feel less stressed, more in control because they are choosing to do something for themselves and for their fertility treatment. Um, And without a doubt, that can only be a good thing. If it doesn't help their chances, it will help them and their journey to get into that end point. Um, So I've always said, you know, I've had some doctors that, you know, I work with and I hear them saying, you know, oh, this is ridiculous. Don't do this or don't do that. And I'm, I'm completely the opposite. I think, whilst I'm never going to fill people with hope and I think you can get to the point where it's almost a little bit obsessive with some of the stuff that they might read online where they're told they have to you know have their bath water at this temperature or they have to have you know take this supplement 15 times a day or they have you know completely plastic free where you know we can all try and do everything we can to make ourselves as healthy and as good as shape and position as possible but we also have to live our lives and we have to do that in a way where we're looking after ourselves without getting too, you know, caught up um, in, in a lot of the, the, the hypes and, and things out there. Um, because at the end of the day, we still need to be people. And, um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tough journey to go through. And so if you can look after yourself and not put too much pressure on yourself, you know, you're going to stand yourself in the best stead you can. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you for all of that. And, you know, you mentioned something again, I, I just keep having these things. You'll mention something. I'm like, Oh, here are 17 more questions I want to ask you. But <laughs> okay. the one thing that you mentioned that I just wanted to share that I've been speaking to colleagues about more. And I teach over at the university of Kansas and I've uh, there, we're doing graduation this weekend, next weekend, uh, next weekend, uh, again, by the time this post, it will have passed. So never mind, doesn't matter. Um, but we're talking about people in helping professions where we encourage people, everything that you just said, so beautiful, right? And we'd say, taking care of yourself, prioritizing, making sure that you have good boundaries and and all of that. And then you also find yourself changing a nappy on the floor of your lab because you want to, because you have something that can help people. And so you have this need, right? Like I'm going on vacation and it's like, how many clients do I take while I'm on vacation? And cause I want to make sure that I don't miss too many, but I also, and it is that thing where even I, I guess I'm speaking to people in the helping professions where it's like, we also need to give ourselves permission to sometimes switch off and take care. And you know, the world won't end without us, <laughs> but it's tough. Yeah, it is tough. And I think when you're, when you're dealing with people who, you can see are finding it really difficult. I used to just take it all on myself. Mm-hmm. And I would come in, you know, if I'd done an ICSI for one of my favorite patients, 
Mm. And I'd come in in the morning and, you know, if they were in the time lapse and you know, you'd go up to the kind of screen and be able to tell the fertilization. And my steps towards the screen would be like heart palpitations going, please, please, please have fertilized. And patients often don't realize how much we do take that honor on ourselves. Because wow. um, we, we, we really want these people for it to work. Um, of course. Especially the ones that you get, you know, attached to because you're just, you know, you've spent a lot of time with their treatment journeys. You know, you're, you're desperately willing it along. And you know, the best thing is when the, the pregnancy results come in. And in my last clinic, my um, embryology office was just down the, the corridor from the nurse's office. And um, so when I was out of the lab and up in the office, um, I would then, you know, we'd get the results would come through onto the system. So I'd be sort of checking my system in and amongst my work. And then I'd hear so the nurses and there'd be a little sort of whoop <laughs> of result would come in. And then you you go on and check and be like, yes, they did. Yes. I would be like, I want to be in the background when you're calling the patients to tell them. And, you know, we, we get so invested in it as well. Um, yeah. And especially if you are working in a smaller clinic, because the, these patients become like family. You know, you, you, you're in the journey together with them. Um, but yeah, it's it can take its toll on on you you know went in the long run but at the time it was how I wanted to be for them right absolutely and then we recognize the things that aren't working anymore and we make changes with new information right we're always able to be flexible and change and adapt to where we where we move forward I feel like I could ask you a hundred more questions but I appreciate the time that you have given me so much I what an education and what a powerful conversation for everybody who is listening and watching. So um, I wanted to also make sure that we, uh, where can everybody find you? So I've got uh, the social media channels. Um, I'm on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Um, all, all about embryology is the, the handle. Um, and then I've got a website, uh, which is www.allaboutembryology, all is one word, um, .co.uk. Um, so that just gives a bit more information about me and obviously booking on if people want to book for consultations. And as I said, it doesn't matter where people are in the world. Um, if I can help them, I will do. Um, so yes. all the information is on, on there. And that's wonderful because we do, obviously, I'm in the States. I have a lot of listeners in the States, but we have a lot of listeners in Canada and Germany and South Africa, surprisingly, and everywhere. So you can get a hold of her and um, get some assistance walking through your journey as well. Um, all of that information will be in the show notes if anybody um, needs to be able to click onto that. And so thank you again so much for your intellectual and emotional labor and everybody else out there be curious not judgmental bye if spending time with the perinatal podcast is something you value and enjoy it would mean so much if you could write a review of the show on your app and don't forget to subscribe so you get a notification when new content is posted take a moment to leave a five-star rating too fresh content is available on youtube Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your content. And you tuning in every episode is what helps keep us going. Follow me at Therapy by Meg on Instagram, and you can find more content by searching the hashtag The Perinatal Podcast. The Perinatal Podcast with Meg Duke is executive produced by David Presley and produced by Meg Duke. Our theme song was written and performed by Antoine McDuffie.